Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Kraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It's great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into the great ancient Christian thinkers of our faith, uh, the Church Fathers. And uh, this Tuesday, I am most excited because we are about to embark on a very important study on one St. Augustine. Now, we might be in St. Augustine for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. To be quite honest with you, I'm not quite sure how long we will be uh, in St. Augustine. Uh, we will just take our time because there is so much to talk about. And as I do, uh, for the most part, each and every Tuesday, I have John O'Hare with me. So, John, great to have you with me another evening. Thank you, Joe. Uh, George Wing was in your stead last week to, to wrap up St. Jerome, and uh, we had a lot of fun. Great to have you back, John. Great to talk about St. Augustine. You know, when people talk about the Church Fathers, when people talk about the great ancient Christian thinkers, John, usually the first name that comes up is St. Augustine. Correct. Uh, St. Augustine is that one figure that stands out as it relates to uh, coming to know the Church Fathers and the essence of our faith. An excellent three-volume work on the Fathers of the Church has uh, been edited by William A. Jurgens. He begins with Clement of Rome and ends with St. John Damascene. Here's what he has to say about St. Augustine. If we are faced with the unlikely proposition of having to destroy completely either the works of Augustine or the works of all the other fathers and writers, I have little doubt that all the others would have to be sacrificed. Augustine must remain. Of all the fathers, it is Augustine who is the most erudite, the most remarkable theological insights, and who is effectively the most prolific. If you were to take a look at all of his writings and stretch out your arms as far as they could go, mm-hmm. that would be about the size of his writings. Yeah, we have noted with some of our church fathers that, that we have discussed at great length over the past, gosh, now six, seven months, John, there are a number who have written quite a bit, and I've, I've made note, we've made note um, to the likes of a St. Jerome that we were talking about over the last few weeks, and St. Basil and others you know, they, they would rival Augustine, but in the end, <laughs> it's just not the volumes as much as it is really the, the content. Pope Paul VI had a great line. He says, It may be said that all the thought currents of the past meet in his works and form the source which provides the whole doctrinal tradition of succeeding ages. I mean, that is a loaded wow. statement. It is no wonder that figures such as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI was so influenced by this man. Now, how many times has it been said that uh, we love to read Benedict XVI because his writing is so clear, his writing is so lucid? Well, Benedict XVI attributes his theological training to one St. Augustine. John, over the last, again, seven months, we have been... Uh, really drawing from the richness of Benedict's reflections, his own catechetical series on the Church Fathers. In this series, he took one week to reflect upon one particular Church Father, and then he would move on. With a handful, he, he took a couple of weeks. St. Jerome, he did over the period of a couple of weeks. He spends five weeks with St. Augustine, and he was hardly 
scratching the surface. So you can well imagine the kind of impact that St. Augustine has had and why Pope Paul VI says what he says, and of course, your great quote from Jurgens as well. You know, John, before we get into all of his great works and the subject matter that for all intents and purposes has transcended time, I thought it would be good to spend our first week just focusing in on the man, his conversion. Uh, we will talk about his great work, Confessions. Uh, Confessions is his own uh, conversion story. I think I, I noted last month that the second most popular book ever uh. to the Bible is St. Augustine's Confessions. Right. It's touching many hearts. Why? Because of the way he details his journey and his quest for truth. And in all of those details, you know, John, there's a lot of a muck and mire. There's a lot of murkiness. And uh, people can identify with that. People can identify with yeah. uh, the sinful nature. So he draws us in by his storytelling, and his conversion is so compelling, it just draws everyone in. Augustine was born on November the 13th, 354, and he died on what has become his feast day, August the 28th, 430. Now, if you go back to 354, uh, a minority of Roman citizens would have been Christians. Mm-hmm. When he died in 430, a majority would have been Christians. We're not talking about large numbers, but a, a minority and now to a majority. So this is, the, he lived in the time of transition. Now he was born in Thagaste, which is uh, in the current country of Algeria, about maybe 80 miles uh, west of the border with Tunisia. If you look up on your map and you can find the Arabic town of Souk Aras, I did today. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did as well. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's where he's from. Uh-huh. And he lived most of his life there except for five years or so in, in Rome, or rather in Italy, Roman Milan. Uh, his father was Patricius, and his mother, of course, was Monica, and he was the oldest of three children. He had a, a younger brother and a younger sister who entered the religious life. And Patricius was kind of a, we'll call him a civil servant. He was not a Christian until near his death, and uh, Monica was a Christian all of her life. He was a good student from the beginning, and he stole some pears, but we're, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> um, and then when he got to be about 16 or 17, there was not enough money to send him on to study the favorite major of rhetoric. <laughs> so he stayed at home for a year, and then a wealthy man, Romanius, I believe his name was, provided a scholarship for Augustine to go to Carthage. And he went, and he began to study. His father was very proud of him, and his father died about a year later. And while he was in Carthage, he met a woman, a concubine. He never does give her name. And with her, they have a son. And the son's name was... Adadatus, I believe, mm-hmm. Adadatus. Okay, and so he's born, and at this time, Augustus is about 17 years old, and he's a father. And he studies rhetoric and becomes a pretty good speaker, and uh, he becomes a Manichaean. Manichaeism kind of believes good and bad. It's semi-Platonic. You live in this idealized sort of theology, and Augustine took this up. He taught rhetoric there. At one point, there was a Faustus, who was going to come to town, and he was supposed to be a big Manichaean, and Augustine was looking forward to him, and yes, this guy was a good speaker, but after, it, there was nothing there. It was kind of vapid and mm-hmm. empty. Well, he was a little bit distraught over this, and then he takes off for, for Italy. He's going to try his luck in, in Rome, and he goes to Rome, and he's there for about three years, and he did not like the students in Carthage because they were disruptive. He didn't like the students in Rome because they didn't pay him. That's how you mm-hmm. made your money as mm-hmm. a rhetoric professor. But then he receives a professorship 
to Milan. Mm-hmm. Now, in those days, Milan was actually pretty much the capital of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. and that's where the emperor lived in those days. And he becomes a professor of, of rhetoric there. About this time, he begins to realize that what he's looking for, it just isn't there. Mm-hmm. Now, in Milan is the great Bishop Ambrose, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And he goes to hear his sermons, and they are good. And Ambrose is uh, ha- has this take on the Bible. He says, the Old Testament should be read looking for allegories. Mm-hmm. It isn't word-for-word true history. And that got him thinking, uh, because what the Manichaeans always put the Old Testament down. I mean, you, you think you have a big God with big feet? Really. Mm-hmm. So he begins to ponder this deal with, with Ambrose, and he is thinking about Ambrose, and as he listens, it kind of begins to dawn upon him that, a lot, largely through Ambrose, that truth cannot be deduced through like a mathematical, mm-hmm. I use the form, ge- geometry formula, trying to prove two, congru- yeah. two triangles, congru- yeah, that can't happen. Yeah. He re- so he's going to have to trust. You know, you can only take philosophy so far, and then it falls short. And uh, so he is going to have to trust something else. Now we're getting very close to his conversion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, in late in the summer of 386, he comes across a good friend of his named Olypius, and he is kind of getting close closer to Christianity, and he hears some people or child he thinks singing, take up a book and read. He does. He turns to Romans 13, 13. Mm-hmm. I won't read it to you, but Paul says, give up the lust of the flesh mm-hmm. and uh, you know, turn towards God. I'm just paraphrasing. Yep, yeah. And he goes off with his friends for kind of a, uh, a retreat. And when he comes back, he goes to the Cathedral of Milan and enters the catechetical school and is baptized on Easter, April 387. Amen. Yeah, there's so many things within what you were talking about there, yeah. John, that, that kind of stand out as, as, as you tell his story. Uh, the first of which has to be St. Monica. It, it has to be St. Monica, because when you talk about the conversion and the journey of faith of one Augustine, as he gives credit, it was due to the prayers of a St. Monica. Now, I want to draw something out as it relates to what St. Monica teaches us as she prays for her son. You know, when we talk about prayer more generally, there's various aspects of prayer, types of prayer. One of those types of prayer is intercession. So, John, you might come to me and then ask for prayers for something you might be struggling with, right, if, you're, if we're close enough. And I, in turn, might ask you to pray for me if there's you know, something I need prayer for, specifically something that I might be struggling with. And so we pray for one another. But as we pray for one another, do we pray within the context, well, you know, I'm going to pray for John, a sinner, and, you know, John, you going to God saying, I'm going to pray for Joe, a sinner. Or do we pray out of that fraternal love for one another? Do we go to God saying, God, help my brother in Christ overcome his addiction? And John, you go to God for me. Help my brother in Christ overcome his addiction. We go to God in love for one another. Not in this sense of, well, he's a sinner. And I'm going to pray for him, Lord, because boy, I tell you what, he, he just doesn't get it. You know, he just doesn't understand what it's all about, so on and so forth. No, no. What St. Monica teaches us is that out from a prayer that is rooted in a humble love, does prayer affect change? 
If we go to God in this mindset that we are better than the next person and we pray for them because they just don't get it, we have to be very, very careful. That is not the kind of prayer that affects change. That's not a spirit, grace-filled prayer. We need to go to God and be mindful that every time we go to God, every time we surrender to God, we do so on bending knee in humility. And we look upon our brother in Christ or sister in Christ and we pray for them out of love. Does Monica pray for Augustine because he's a sinner? No, she prays for her son because she understands well that before he's a sinner, he's a child of God. And Monica was able to see that because her heart was pure. Monica was able to see that because what motivated her prayer was conversion, not a a self-righteousness. I want to talk about this, John, because it's so easy today to look upon a situation or to look upon someone and judge them only for what we see, the sin, the manifestation. And we don't enter into the kind of prayer that Paul asks for. Let your prayer be purged in purity. Let your prayer come from the heart. Let your prayer be something that is life-giving. Let your prayer yield joy. In the confessions, he gets closer, almost, they have uh, almost seventh mansion uh, experiences, yeah. but that's in Ostia, shortly before her death. She doesn't survive long after his conversion. But beforehand, it seemed rather human. It wasn't her discussion with him that converted him. It was Mm-mm. more Ambrose, although Ambrose and Augustine were never close. They knew each other, but they weren't buds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until after his conversion that they really got into a really interesting prayer circle. It's really beautiful to read the passages that take place in Ostia. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, Benedict makes note to John that uh, for anyone who studies St. Augustine, there's a lot of scholars on St. Augustine. There's so much to research or so much um, to, to read and to write about that to know the conversion of Augustine is to first know the person of St. Monica. Uh, there's a reason why she's a saint. Yes. Um, she's not a saint because her son converted. She's a saint, first and foremost, because of the person she was. And out from that personhood of one Saint Monica uh, came a kind of prayer that would change a person like her son, and of course, many others. You had mentioned Saint Ambrose, and I wanted to go back to something Benedict had said when we were talking about Bishop Ambrose and how he influenced Benedict. And he says that this is Benedict XVI. What moved the heart of the young African, skeptic and downhearted, and what impelled him to definitive conversion was not above all Ambrose's splendid homilies, although he deeply appreciated them. It was rather the testimony of the bishop and his Milanese church that prayed and sang as one intact body. It was a church that could resist the tyrannical ploys of the emperor and his mother, who in early 386 again demanded a church building for the Arian celebrations. In the building that was to be requisitioned, Augustine relates, the devout people watched, ready to die with their bishop. This he recorded in his confessions. And he goes on to say, we too, although spiritually tepid, shared in the excitement of the whole people because of the presence of one St. Ambrose. So you can see the kind of influence and the kind of authority that he brought with his presence. You had mentioned earlier that 
Uh, he took up the art of listening to Ambrose. Uh, certainly he was able to show him the beauty of truth uh, th- that we can actually come to know just not based upon what we can see, just not based upon some mathematical puzzle or some sort of mystery and who done it. No, there's something more, there's something greater. That reminds me of the often told story of Francis of Assisi. When he and his friend go say, let's go pray for the town, they will go walk around the town and they come back and he said, we didn't pray. Yes, we did. We walked around and gave an example. Mm-hmm. And you convert people by your example more than by anything else. And that is a little bit about St. Ambrose. If yeah. I could go on a little bit, he has the famous quote in chapter one, paragraph one, about our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Mm. And he felt that restlessness all his life. Now, his education, again, he was in rhetoric. It was to be famous and make money. I mean, that, seem, that sounds like what education is about today in our colleges. You know, we're not really interested in you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We want you to get rich and make money, you know, be yeah. rich and famous. Yeah. And I think he saw that, and there, but something was missing. And I think, he began, I think he believes that you're born with a certain selfishness. Yeah. He was almost the coiner of the phrase, the original sin. I mean, yep. not that yep. he invented it, but I mean, he kind of came yes. to it. We are born even as cute little one-day-olds. Yeah. There's something selfish in us, and it, it's going to get, it develops as we get older. Mm-hmm. And that has to be looked at, addressed, mm-hmm. prayed for. You were talking earlier, John, before we came on air here about uh, this search for truth. And you were mentioning a book that had been written uh, four or five years ago. Oh, yes. There was a, it, it's an awful book, quite vapid, and it was <laughs> called Eat, Pray, Love. And it was made into a movie starring Julia Roberts. And anyway, it's about a woman who's married, tells her husband she doesn't like him, leaves him. She's going to go search for, we'll call it truth. And she goes to Rome and eats a lot of pasta. Then she goes to Italy and kind of gets involved in New Age, Hinduism, or whatever it is. And then she leaves to an island and finds a handsome, well-to-do man, of course, and they fornicate. That's the end of the movie. So that is your search for truth, according to this woman. That's the way I mm-hmm. took the book and the movie. And I think, well, that is really shallow. Mm-hmm. But it, it gets to me, we are searching for truth. A lot of time it is rather odd. It, I don't think it really leads us where we want to go. Mm-hmm. But I think that's all of us search for something that really speaks to us. Yeah, you were talking earlier about St. Augustine's quest for truth, and uh, what's really important to note in his journey of faith and his conversion is that out from his contact with St. Ambrose was this realization that Jesus Christ was the Word, uh, and he was the fulfillment of all reason, but also he opened a new door to truth for him. And so we are made then to see, John, as we study the faith, when we seek to better understand truth, it's just not about what we see on the outside, but the reality of what is also on the inside. Again, when we talk about truth, we always put them in the the categories of objective truth and subjective truth. Objective truth is what is seen, what is external, what is public, what is revealed. Subjective truth is what is hidden, unseen, unclear. But we still have to seek it out, right? Uh, Let us illustrate with the analogy of a cookie. If I were to give you a chocolate chip cookie, you could describe what that cookie looks like to me on the outside. If you're just looking at it, maybe it's rigid on the outside, it's circular, it has, uh, you see the, the, the brown chocolate chips, and you describe that to me. Then if I ask you to take a bite into that cookie, 
are you going to give me the same description of that chocolate chip cookie? No, it's going to be very different. It's going to be sweet. It's going to be crunchy. These are things, John, that you can identify because of your encounter with them. That part of truth, which is the essence of the thing itself. So for St. Augustine, he was always all about reason, logic, truth, that this was the quintessential in the realm of wisdom. Now, this is what drew him to Cicero. He fell in love with wisdom through Cicero, okay? But then after Ambrose, post-Ambrose, St. Augustine realized that all he was really able to do was offer up an external description of, say, a chocolate chip cookie, that there was more to, for the sake of the analogy, to a chocolate chip cookie. There was the essence of what makes a chocolate chip cookie a chocolate chip cookie. It's sweetness. We don't buy a cookie because of what it looks like. We buy a cookie because of what it tastes like. And that taste is that personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Taste and see, the psalmist says, the goodness of the Lord. So out from his encounter with Ambrose, he is made to look upon truth in a totally and entirely different way, not just through reason, but through faith and reason. In faith, when we have that personal encounter with Jesus Christ, we are now describing the essence of it, and therefore, we begin to draw from wisdom, capital W. Oh, when you talked about faith, I thought of the word trust. Mm -hmm. Um, Because once he realizes logic and philosophical equations aren't going to get you there, what are you going to do then? And Mm -hmm. you mentioned Ambrose and the struggle with the church and the Arians. And all of this put together, what am I going to trust? If I want to get to truth, I have to go to faith. Mm -hmm. Faith means I have to trust. I can't prove it mathematically, but trust is going to end. I think that that he found something he could trust. Faustus wasn't it. Amen. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, when you go into the catechism, John, uh, they, they lay out uh, the attributes of faith. The first, of course, being that it is a gift, gift given to yes. us from God. The second is that it is an act, and that act is what? Trust. Trust is the single most concrete act and virtue of faith. Now, what's interesting in the realm of science, John, and uh, this is taken up by one by the name of uh, Poliani. Poliani, he's a philosopher he gives us what's called the fiduciary principle. What is the fiduciary principle? Well, fiduciary in its root, fides, faith. What it lays out is that every science is built upon some aspect of trust. Every scientist, if you will, is leaning upon a journal, a magazine, a, a research model that has gone before him. He needs to, or she needs to trust what has gone before him. So Poliani says, Hey, we trust in science all the time. Why can't we then trust in faith, right? How much of a jump or leap is it actually going to be? Uh, I'm grateful that you bring up trust because really, yeah, this is what lies at the heart of of this uh, tension inside of St. Augustine. And he, he does get to a point which was a grace moment for him uh, that he realizes he belongs to God. Yes, yes. He belongs to God. And, and when he does, John, there's a huge point to be had here. He doesn't look back and miss the life he led. No, when he has that personal encounter with Jesus Christ, he has a singular focus on the person of Jesus Christ. 
It's like one Saul, who of course we know as St. Paul. He has that encounter with Christ, and he never looks back. By the way, when John says, uh, that is, John the Baptist says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, the Greek word for repent is metanoia. Its translation literally means change of direction, a single-mindedness or one-heartedness for God, right? Um, So this is all playing out in the life of St. Augustine. Yeah, very well. Um, After he left, after his mother died and he goes back to Italy, he and his son form a a group of men, form kind of a monastery, and they Mm. are there. And he was called out to do this and that. And a bishop meets him, and the bishop didn't speak Latin. He spoke only Greek. And so he brings in St. Augustine. Augustine didn't want to. He gets ordained, becomes a bishop. That's how he became the Bishop of Hippo. And he spent most of his life, except for a few years, in in the Hippo area in North Africa. And uh, what I wanted to just get out is he was about 42 years old when he wrote the Confessions. He'd been a bishop now for, oh, maybe close to 10 years. So he wasn't a neophyte. He was a bishop looking back. Mm-hmm. And this is his spiritual autobiography, the first one that had really ever been written. There had been histories before, histories of people, even people telling their own story. But this was a real spiritual, deep spiritual autobiography, and it was unique in its of its kind. And he realizes that I was like that little one-year-old. I was mm-hmm. selfish. Mm-hmm. And through the grace of God, I, not that I'm still, not that I'm completely different, but I mean, I, I have this issue, and we're going to do the metanoia. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting, and just this might be our, our closing thought here, John. As I talk about confessions being the second second most popular book sold on the bookshelves, as you're talking there, I'm also made to remember uh, something of the prodigal son. If you were to go into art history, you see by far the most uh, painted, uh, sculpted, uh, drawn event in history is Christ on the cross. The second most popular figure uh, by far is Mary. The third most uh, drawn, painted, sculpted piece in history is the narrative of the prodigal son. Uh And my point is this. There's something about the story of the prodigal son, which in so many ways is the story of St. Augustine, that draws us in, that helps us to better understand our faith journey. We look at the prodigal son, we look at St. Augustine, and we say, I can identify with that man. I can identify with that son because it's our own journey, John. Yes. It's our own journey. And I think in the end, as we talk about the man, St. Augustine, we will come to understand, appreciate the struggle, even as we talk about his works, uh, because in his writing, you have a deep sense that this is a man uh, who has lived a life where he struggled in grace, and he's arrived at a point of coming to understand things about human nature, things about God, that open new vistas and new avenues for all of us who wish to read them. Um, amen to that. Let us close in a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. 
heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.